Welcome to a coffee room chat in ENT. This is the second series of podcasts where experts in the field discuss their experience in the management of important and challenging aspects of ENT surgery. This is a collaboration between ENT UK and the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, and it's presented and produced by me, James Tyson, an ENT surgeon from Cambridge and the Director of eLearning for ENT UK, uh, and of course with the help of the team at the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. So our fourth episode was put together with the help of the Head and Society and features uh, Mr Frank Stafford and Mr Ricard Simo. We're discussing the management of pharyngeal pouches. Hi Frank, how are you? Well, thank you, Ricardo. Okay, yeah. Good. Can I ask you to introduce yourself? Yes, my name's Frank Stafford. I'm a head and neck surgeon based in Sunderland now. My main interests are really uh, endocrine surgery now, but obviously I do quite a bit of benign head and neck surgery as well. Okay, good. So um, I'm Ricardo Simo. I'm a head and neck surgeon at Guy's, and, and probably I have the same kind of interest as you and the same kind of scope of practice. So we, we've been very kindly asked by ENT UK, the uh, head and neck uh, society, to do um, this uh, uh, podcast to discuss basically how we do pharyngeal pouch surgery. So t- tell me, what, uh, how, many, how many pouches do, do you do uh, a year? Um, There's two of us in the unit who, who actually uh, deal with the pharyngeal pouches, uh, we don't get a huge number. I think probably about half a dozen years, six a year, somewhere, or something like that. Maybe, maybe it's a seven or eight, but um, it's not something that we see terribly commonly. And uh, what um, do you think that the um, you know the, the incidence of pouches is increase or decrease in the UK? Do you... I don't know. I, we, uh, we were discussing this recently, and, and we think we might be seeing a little bit less uh, uh, pouches, but that might reflect. COVID and the, the effect that's had on patients seeking help from uh, from symptoms that they're not too too concerned about. It's, it's always, <clears throat> um, I find it quite remarkable how how well people get on when they've got quite large pharyngeal pouches where they, they seem to really kind of subconsciously cope with it and and uh, and manage to eat a relatively normal diet. I think I think it is true, isn't it? I mean, I I I, I just find that uh, there was a time where you know the the, the incidence was actually quite steady, um, and then obviously with the pandemic, it certainly had decreased. And then what I also now find is that there are a lot of uh, patients that are actually referred from other units. So there are people who may be less confident to do pouches that they then refer your patients. So there may be kind of a, a false sense of uh, security that you you although they may that. The incident is kind of less, but in fact, you'll probably see more because yes. other people are less confident of uh, of, of doing it. And, and I guess that leads to the kind of the uh, the next question of saying, you know, who, who you think you should be doing uh, power surgery? Because obviously, if you do get a complication, that's where the problem is. Everybody endoscopically can, yes. can do things. But if you do get a big complication, you have to open your neck and then... Uh, uh, that, that's a big problem. And then some, some, you know, some of the general kind of ENT surgeon, uh, uh, is not, maybe not qualified for that. What, what, what's your view on that? Yes. I, I think most people now recognize that, that you need to focus the management of pouches in, in a, in a, not a single pair of hands, because that's always a mistake, but, but, but really a limited number in any particular department. And if you've only got a very small department with not a lot of, uh, of head and neck surgery going on, I think you've got to think twice about whether you should be doing this. Doing transoral uh, pouch stapling or 
we actually use lasers, we don't staple anymore, um, seems relatively easy, but it's fraught with risk. And it's also been pretty well demonstrated in the literature that if you don't do very many, particularly with a stapling technique, you don't get good results. You get failure, you get uh, inadequate uh, re- reduction of the pouch or inadequate marsupialization. So I think there's no question that it's a very technique-sensitive condition and that the individuals who are doing it should be doing it as regularly as possible. I, I, I do, I do, you know, really totally agree with that. Uh, um, just before we go into the techniques, I think what, what we, we may be a good idea to do is just to see what, what, do, how we deal with that, uh, that initial patient that you see in the clinic with a suspected pouch. They normally tend to be kind of an individual, um, you know, usually kind of over the age of kind of 60 who, uh, is been kind of regurgitating food and, and they're having problems. And obviously you do suspect you need to exclude that they don't have uh, cancer. So I guess, you know, you do a, a full ENT examination, you do, to obviously take a proper history about certain kind of uh, indicators of what the, that patient needs to, whether may potentially have a pouch or not, then you do a scope. Um, uh, you may not see anything, but you may see all, all that pulling of saliva that sort of kind of prompts into, into do something. And then, uh, and then you, I guess you do a barium swallow, which is uh, fairly standard. And then, and then, and then you see, uh, you see what, uh, what, what there is. Now, in terms of kind of basically assessing that patient, uh, whether they can have an endoscopic approach or they need to go to a uh, an open approach what uh, what sort of kind of things do you look at in the kind of their uh, kind of facial anatomy if you like well the first thing i look at is the size of the pouch actually because if it's very big then i'm going to recommend an external approach in general to generalization the age of the patient i think is also relevant as far as their anatomy goes um so uh, i think it's um it's more likely in men than women that you'll have difficulty accessing the pouch with a rigid uh, instrument. And you've got to look at their teeth. You look at the shape of their jaw. I'm afraid I don't have a scientific formula for this. Um, but when you do a lot of end oral laser work uh, for cancers and other laryngeal pathology, you you certainly can get it. You should have a good idea as to whether you're going to get good access. But ultimately, the access is really only achievable um, at surgery when they're under a general anaesthetic, and then you'll know whether you can do it or not. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I tend to kind of, uh, you know, have the same approach as you, and and uh, and, but I always tell the patients that, yeah, um, my initial assessment is that you are. Um, qualified for an endoscopic uh, approach but really at the end of the day you don't really know uh at, until the day that you do that and then i guess that sort of kind of brings the next question is that whether you uh, are going to do everything on one go uh, or you're going to basically say no we cannot do it and we'll do it we'll do an open approach the other day do you tend to kind of do it on or you know plan for to do uh, an transoral and and if that it's not possible to do an open approach on the day or yeah, what's, your, 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 what's your what's your purely practical point of view um i would probably list a patient for 30 minutes for a transoral endoscopic procedure and that's not long enough to then convert to an open uh and list pressures mean i don't think you can you can leave a whole 2 hours free to uh, to go in and change your mind. So so I would always warn the patient if we can't deal with this for whatever reason, whether it's access or whether it's something that you find at examination that you're not happy with, then I then I would just stop. And mm-hmm. they know that. And then we can plan. And you may even want to reassess them in 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 some way 
before you go in externally. Particularly, I think um, it's actually, particularly in older patients, it's quite a good idea to get a CT scan of the neck before you, you go in to have a look at the soft tissues, just in case there's something going on there that you might not expect. I think that... Um, there certainly was a time when I would have just gone straight into the neck anyway. But I think that these days, because these things are so readily available, that you want you might want to think twice before going straight in to do a pouch. Uh, just because it, it's, it, there's always something that might just throw you. For example, there are about 10% of pouches will be on the right side, not the yes, left. That's true. That's true. Uh, and, and you won't know that necessarily. You might from the barium swallow, but you might not be sure. Yeah, and they, they, so I think that it's worthwhile just making sure that everything is is uh, is right. I think that's a really very good point, and I think you know because of the, they are uh, an elderly group, they they may have you know you you may be concerned and may have some of the pathology. Uh, it's obviously the 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 potential risk of having kind of a pouch, uh, you know, cancer, which is obviously still still possible. We I'm sure that you've probably seen some in your lifetime. I've seen you know they're not that many, but, yeah, but they, it's about one or two percent, isn't it? Yeah, we'll no. we'll have either uh, a carcinoma in situ or or significant. Uh, dysplasia but but you do get uh, uh, you do get squam cell cancers in them and i have seen seen them i've seen two i can think of just the top of my head um and uh and that's usually diagnosed at um endoscopy but one of them i do recall was diagnosed on the barium swallow you could see an irregular mass and of course you then go to staging and before you even do anything yeah yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I've got, uh, you know, I'm very glad to, to hear that you, we've got the same uh, view on that. So, um, and I guess the, the next question is, is, is about what's your preferred method? I mean, I think obviously in this day and age, I think everybody would uh, prefer to go, uh, to an endoscopic approach whenever that's possible. Um, and, uh, and I guess, uh, the, you know, obviously there are two main approaches. Obviously Dolman described this many moons ago. Where he has a very nice uh, endoscope and he used to kind of do that with diathermy and i guess that we are applied some more modern patholo- uh, uh, kind of techniques obviously we use the laser and then in the 90s uh, the the stapling was introduced i mean i i, I used to kind of do the, the 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 stapling and i moved to kind of the laser for a number of reasons which are, I, I probably like to discuss and i think you've got a similar views on that so you use the laser as well is that yes, correct absolutely so so i learned to do dolman's procedure when i was a registrar at the rvi in newcastle we had the, the this ancient dolman's kit which is a big long crocodile uh, coagulation diathermy instrument and then a, a, a cutting diathermy knife and um it from a, a kind of theater time point of view it was pretty quick but it was extremely damaging to the esophagus and there were complications with that um which is one of the reasons why it became quite common in fact i think i wrote a paper on this in the 80s with andy welsh to do to, to prefer external approach. Yeah. Uh, we, we went to external approach for quite a while. Then the stapling, uh, technique came along and everybody was very happy with it because it seemed so quick and a lot safer. Uh, after doing stapling for a while and trying different methods of stapling in the sense of using, um, telescopes to make sure you're in the right place and also finding that larger pouches just really weren't suitable for it. And also the recurrence rate, which was pretty high, 25%. Um, and also we had some leaks at the, at the bottom, uh, because the stapling guns don't close off the bottom end of the incision. So 
uh, I was uh, in Sunderland and I'd got a, a, a laser. This was in the 90s. And there were some good publications came out of Belgium about transoral CO2 laser where they had large numbers yeah, with yeah, very, Mark, very low complications. Mark Remarks, they did, yes. yeah, did all that work. That's yeah. right, yeah. So I uh, I started using the CO2 laser with a diverticuloscope. And I've got to say, I've since then, that's what I've always done. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, after I'd moved away from Sunderland, uh, they continued to use that technique. And so that's why my colleague, um, Harold and I still use the CO2 technique uh, for most cases that are accessible. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I had a kind of a similar journey in the sense that I, I used to kind of do the uh, the stapling, um, you know, quite for, um, with, a, with that sort of kind of, you know, that counselling patients of that kind of 20 25% mm-hmm. kind of recurrence rate, you need to probably do it. I just find uh, the... the uh, uh, you know, the stapling very clunky, very binary. Uh, you don't have that finesse to retouch the edges if you need to. Um, uh, and I think obviously recently, uh, the, the, the endoscopic stapling, um, the, the 35 millimeter, which is slightly thinner one, it's gone out of the market. I don't know whether it's because of, uh, you know, political issues or manufacturing issues, whatever. Uh, and then also, I just also find that the, the debit is Scope, the the divertoscope is actually really quite clunky and it, it really really you, you have to have a really significant mouth opening some of the uh, companies that they produce the kind of the uh, the the dolman scope now they're actually much much easier yes. and then you can actually the access is much better and I, I i totally agree that i i think the laser would be my preferred technique and uh, do you have any kind of any tips to if you have somebody who you are uh, let's say kind of a registrar year one who would say, okay, w- what are your tips to do kind of perfect kind of, uh, you know, uh, endoscopic well, uh, both- laser surgery to, just to make sure that, you know, you get all those fibers of the cracophyngeas mm. and, and you don't get a leak. It's your, it's your access and your view that's the, the key. If you don't have good access and if you can't see the base of the pouch when you've got the scope in, then you're going to be in trouble. And I think that certainly I wouldn't be letting juniors do difficult ones until they'd done a few straightforward ones. Um, I think you have to remind them to be careful about people's teeth. Back in the day when I was a registrar, there were quite a lot of edentulous patients around in the 60s, and that seems to have all changed now, which makes life very difficult. Everybody got implants. And in the north, yeah, they've all got implants. In the northeast, everybody should get their teeth taken out when they were 25, but I think that's changed now. Um, I think, yes, I think it's access is the key. and You must be able to see what, you, what you're dealing with. You must be confident that you're in the right place. Um I can tell you, I have had one patient referred to me who had their esophagus stapled, closed, and they were surprised when they couldn't swallow. Uh, and I think that it's the same with the laser. You've got to be very careful as long as you're in the right place. And whether you use a, a CO2 laser fiber, which we do sometimes because it's a little bit easier to handle than the, the straight beam when you're, when you're going down the back wall, you can see the muscle fibers come apart. And just remember not to go too deep. Either once you're through those muscle fibers and you marsupialize the pouch, that's all you need to do. Yes, I, I, I totally agree. I think that's really great, uh, 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 a great tip. You can, I mean, the other thing is that obviously with, uh, with the, um, you know, with, with the laser, uh, I always also make sure that, you know, there's no kind of no bleeding between the edges. So you, and some people put stitches. I don't, do you put no. stitches? I don't either. No. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and I think I always said, well, if we need to kind of retouch things, it's quite an easy thing to do. Yes. Because then, whereas with a stapler, that becomes a real nightmare because yes. you have to kind of negotiate all the embedded stapling. You cannot really do it. It's much, much difficult. So I think we do agree that that's probably the best thing to do. So yes. if you do then need to have 
those large pouches that you think that they are not suitable for transural or there's a problem with access, then what do you do with your pouches, your external approaches? Yeah, okay. So uh, I've always done a pretty traditional uh, kind of approach, which is dissecting out the – well, obviously, you, you, you put a bit pack in the pouch to, to bulk it up so you can find it. Because yes. if you don't, you'll never find it. Correct. Um, and then – Obviously, once you've identified where it is, and it's not as easy as it sounds. It just, I agree. It's not like it might be easy, but actually when you go in there and you're thinking, where is this bit? Where's this pouch? And pouches are <clears throat> like inguinal hernias. They have an onion skin sort of layer over them. So you have to work your way very slowly through that until you get to the mucosa and you can see the bit packed through it. Um, and then obviously you can identify the muscle fibers of the cricopharyngeal sphincter, and then you divide them carefully, as you would do in a in a cricopharyngeal myotomy for, for laryngectomy patients as well. Right. So you carefully do that. Be careful not to make a hole in the mucosa. You do. You've got to repair it. Um, and then I excise the pouch, usually because they're quite big. Mm. If it's a small pouch, some people I know invert them. I worked with a guy called John Birchall, who's, I think, retired now, professor of yeah, 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 John yeah. used to do yeah. a suspensory technique yeah, where he would hitch I, them up. I, I do, I do actually, I have to, I have to say that, uh, because the majority of the patients are, um, are, are quite elderly. And I, I did, uh, I did, uh, not long ago, I did a 92 year old who had a kind of moderate pouch, had a kind of awful teeth and you, you couldn't do an endoscopic approach. So I had to do an, an and I did a myotomy and then I said, well, I, I don't fancy sort of kind of, you know, Exactly, because if, if this poor woman gets a leak, that she could die. Yes, and and that that's another thing you need to co- make in consideration. These are quite often quite frail patients; they are elderly, uh, quite a lot of them. And then if you if you do make them a hole in the esophagus, then that can be quite quite dangerous. So what I've done is that I do I do transfix the pouch, or obviously empty the pouch mm. from any debris. Check check that there's nothing in the pouch, and then uh, and then what I do is I do transfix the neck through the myotomy. Transfix the uh, the neck of the the, the pouch, or so strangulate the the the, the opening. Mm-hmm. Then do a diathermy to, to to cause some fibrosis, and then do a pexy. Okay. I just find that is actually quite useful. And then you don't open the mucosa, which is right. basically what's going to cause you. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I I I, I check that with uh, some people, and uh, you know uh, James England, and and some people in, in Australia, Carsten Palm mm-hmm. uh, in Sydney, and. They do similar technique for kind of more the kind of frail patient, and okay. it works very. Right. I, I, I find it. I, 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 it works very well. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I thought I'll that keep that in mind. Is <laughs> always sort of giving each other yeah. tips. Okay, I've have, I have considered whether we should just invert it. Yes, and um, because the pouches I've been doing are so large, I've always been concerned that it would just cause an obstruction. So I haven't done that. But in, if you were, got into a pouch which was by chance relatively small, or if you're doing it in. Um, uh, for example, a young man or young uh, men are more common, but in a, a young person who has a relatively small pouch, I think you could invert it and then and then repair I, it as you would repair a hernia. I, I agree. I, I I think that's a really good 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 tip too. Now then, then let's just kind of move. Okay, we we discuss all the uh, you know how we do it type of thing, but uh, you know whether you are doing endoscopically or you're going to do it, uh, you know, externally, um, you know, there's always kind of a risk of making a, a hole in the esophagus. And you, if you're concerned, what, what, what do you do in that sort of situation? What, uh, uh, what, what would oh, you- well, basically, you can, uh, you can scan them because you'll see air in the, in the, the neck and the media stain of it, or you can get a dye study to uh, determine if it's a significant leak or not. And that, uh, probably what I would do is give the, the X-ray guys are ring and see who's around and say, "What do you want to do? Tell me, tell me." Because the scans are much easier to get, yeah, uh, very quickly, yeah. 
Uh, yeah. And if you really want to know them, then that's uh, so. If you've got a patient who's has spiking temperatures or has uh, crepitus uh, surgical emphysema, then you need to to know quickly because you're going to have to go in. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think a CT scan would do me to start with, but then a dye study if you want to define it better, or if you if you if they are asymptomatic, then I do dye studies on them before we feed them. Yeah. Uh, okay. And with the laser technique. I've always waited three days. I know it's it's longer than the stapling. I know some people do stapling as a day case. I'm very uncomfortable about that. Yeah. These are these are not very often. They're not common patients. They're not blocking a lot of beds, and uh, and they're often elderly. Yeah. So I I personally am cautious and conservative. Yeah. I mean, I, I with the laser ones, I I do uh, I do keep them overnight. I keep them uh, nil by mouth, and I obviously check that they don't have any temperature and all the rest of it. And then the f- the following morning, we do we do start them fitting the same way you would do yeah. with, with a stapling. Um, and then yeah, th- that's I guess the the next question in terms of kind of what do you let us say that you do a standard sort of kind of laser procedure. What, what what's your kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, program for these patients for the next kind of uh, you know few days do you give them um do you give them ppis do you what's your kind of uh, dietetic regime to kind of build them up uh, do you, yeah, we, do you we, give them a steak and kidney pie uh, <laughs> you know right from the first day obviously no, no, not no, no. <laughs> we give them ppis to start with if they are most of them are already on them um and uh, I, I would wait three days and then we get a diet study that, which is planned staged um the swallowing Therapists are always involved as well, so they come and see them. And uh, I, would, I would start them on a soft diet. I mean, but solids, not not just not just liquids. Um, something fairly normal, really, as long as as long as everybody's if their if their diet study is absolutely normal, there's no sign of a leak, then they can start on a soft diet and very rapidly build them into whatever whatever they want, really. Yeah. But I like to have the swallowing. We or we have good swallowing therapists because we're a big head and neck unit. They're available. So um, I like them to be involved because they can just keep a little bit closer eye on how these patients are managing, particularly to make sure they're not aspirating. Yeah, that's that. that, that really, that's a very good point. So, I mean, I think we can kind of wrap this up. I think we've, we've covered uh, all, all the areas. Is there anything you want to add, uh, do you think, in terms of kind of what would be useful for the youngsters in terms of kind of managing well, pharyngeal pouch? Yeah, Always have it in mind because they're often relatively asymptomatic. Mm. So I think when you, they're not always, you may get a history of regurgitation, but not always. Um, they may come in with, because uh, we actually get significant numbers referred from gastroenterology who've attempted to do um, uh, endoscopy for dysphagia. Uh, and they've stuck it into a pouch and haven't been able to get any further. And, I haven't had any that have ruptured a pouch, but uh, I think that quite often the symptomatology does not indicate pharyngeal pouch. So you've always got to have it in the back of your mind. Yes. Um, when yes. you see somebody who's got a slightly odd swallowing problem and they're just you're not quite sure what's going on. And these days you can get very swallows quickly. Yes. Because yes. you just stick them on the two-week wait rather than you find <laughs> out. So I think that's the, the key to finding them is to be suspicious. Yes. When you the, other, the other thing about external approach is that this is a very tricky area to operate on. I agree. They don't heal well. The posterior pharyngeal wall has something wrong with it. Um, we get quite a lot of patients coming from orthopedics who have had cervical spine uh, procedures, particularly plating, uh, who get a breakdown of the posterior pharyngeal wall. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and, and it's, a, it's a poorly vascularized area. Uh, its blood supply is coming in, in uh, from both sides, but the midline is not well vascularized. 
um, and it's a it's a the median rafi is very poor. It heals very poorly if you're not careful. Yeah. So yeah. keep that in mind when you're doing. No, it. and also the elderly patients. Yes. Uh, and then they're, they're more delicate. The tissue is more delicate. So yeah, it's really good. It's really really good to have this conversation. It's uh, I've learned a lot of things. So uh, uh, thank you very much. So, Pleasure. Okay. You take care. Thank you very much to Frank Stafford and to Ricard Simo for uh, an excellent talk there. I think we've got a much better understanding of which techniques to use for pharyngeal pouch surgery, and in, in particular, when to choose a laser as opposed to stapling, and how to manage those more tricky patients if things don't quite go to plan. So I hope you've enjoyed that and that you'll join us next week for our fifth episode in the series, which will be on the surgical management of nasal valve obstruction. And this is from uh, Mr. Natarajan Balaji and Mr. Saleh Okovat. Look forward to that next week.